This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club for Thursday, January 27th. Today we're going to be talking about Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother by Yale Law Professor Amy Chua. If you haven't heard of this book, or at least the term Tiger Mother, you've truly been living in a cave these last few days. She's been on every single media outlet imaginable, including ours now. This is Hannah Rosen. I am an editor of Double X, and I'm joined here in the DC studio by Anne Hulbert, who's Slate's literary editor, and who's herself working on a book about child prodigies. Hello, Anne. Hello. And she wrote Slate's review of this book, by the way, which you should check out. And in the New York studio, we have Nina Shen Rostogi, who writes Slate's Browbeat, the culture blog on Slate. Hi, Nina. Hi, Anna. So before we get to talking about Tiger Mother, which we are so excited to do, because even though there's been so much said, there is yet so much more to say. I want to make an announcement about the future of Slate's audio book club. As many of you know, we put our February selection up to a listener vote. This is something new we're going to do is put the books up for a vote. We'll offer you three books and you guys can vote. Nearly 1,500 of you already voted, and the winner is the novel Room by Emma Donahue, which tells the story of a woman and her five-year-old son who live isolated in a small room for reasons that will become clear when we discuss it. And we will be talking about Room on Monday, February 28th. So get to reading. And before then, you'll have a chance to vote for the March Book Club choice. Uh, if you want to suggest a nominee, drop us an email at podcasts at slate. Dot com. That's podcasts with an S at slate.com by February 4th. We will pick the top three and then the voting will take place February 7th to 11th at slate.com slash book club. So please come and vote with us. Okay, on to Tiger Mother. Let's just set the basics in case people have forgotten them or have missed them. It's essentially it's a parenting memoir by a woman named Amy Chua, who's a Yale law professor who has two daughters whose names are Sophia and Lulu. She set out to make them into to piano prodigies, basically, and geniuses and to get straight A's. And she did this with a form of harsh parenting, which she is calling Chinese parenting. There was an excerpt in the Wall Street Journal, and there are several stories that have been circulating. And just to give you a sample of some Amy Chua parenting, Nina, can you tell a couple of the stories that have been out there? Yeah, well, there are a couple that have gained a lot of notoriety. You know, one of the earliest ones in the book concerns Amy Chua's younger daughter, Lulu, who is, you know, the sort of more rebellious of the two girls. Lulu is three years old, and Amy 
Chua is trying to get her to play a few notes on the piano and Lulu won't do it. And so she takes her daughter out onto the back porch uh, where the wind chill is 20 degrees and she makes Lulu stand out there till she agrees to come in and, and play it. And there's a intense battle of the wills between those two. At another point, Chua describes how she is at a dinner party and recalls an incident in which she called her elder daughter Sophia garbage, causing all of the other women at the table to you know, gasp their hands and, up and faint and, uh, <laughs> you know, tear out their hair. And Chua can't really understand what is so, so bad about that. And then in... You can in tell the very, birthday I was just about to say, next. this is, I think, one that has raised a, a lot of ire. Amy, Chua has a birthday and she's already pretty pissed because her husband has forgotten to make reservations. So they are at a mediocre Italian restaurant, as she calls it. And the girls bring her these handmade birthday cards and she basically throws them back in their faces, you know, saying that they look like they took her 20 seconds to make. And um, I'm just going to read a little quote. So Chua, uh, she says, I grabbed the card again and I flipped it over. I pulled out a pen from my purse and scrawled, Happy birthday, Lulu. Whoopee. I added a big sour face. What if I gave you this for your birthday, Lulu? Would you like that? But I would never do that, Lulu. No, I get you magicians and giant slides that cost me hundreds of dollars. I get you huge ice cream cakes shaped like penguins, and I spend half my salary on stupid sticker and eraser party favors that everyone just throws away. I work so hard to give you good birthdays. I deserve better than this, so I reject this. I threw the card back. It's so funny because when I was thinking about that birthday card story, I was thinking, oh, that's not so bad. You can tell your kid. I forgot the exact words that you said. <laughs> like, particularly the I spend hundreds of dollars. Like, you, should, you can't say that to your kid. It's not your kid's yeah, fault that an, you yeah. spend hundreds of dollars. It's, you know, on when you serve. Re- exactly on stickers when you yeah. read the words you realize yes there are those anal parents who spend hundreds of dollars on stickers you right. could have just as easily given the kids you know a pink piece of paper and they would have been just as happy it's funny this book has tapped into all of our fears about the laxness of western parenting and the superiority of china and you know it's it's brought out the sort of hysterical and the tender and the nervous and all of us and yet i do feel like a lot of people haven't actually read the book which is why i'm happy to talk about the book as a book right now and as a memoir one of the things that i was thinking about and please respond is that you know one thing that i actually think really works about it before we get into the horror of her actual parenting Let's just talk about it as a memoir, as her recounting of the details and the stories you told, Nina, are perfect examples. There's something interesting about being a narrator who is just self-aware enough to tell the stories and all their true horror. She doesn't paper over these stories. She doesn't make herself look better than she is. I mean, there are times when when Lulu calls her Lord Voldemort and says she hates her and calls her a freak, you know? So she's definitely telling stories which make her look horrible. On the other hand, she's kind of not quite self-aware enough to save herself from herself. And I, and I actually thought, you know, to rescue herself or make her look good. And I thought that kind of made it a good memoir. I mean, Anne, what did you think of it just as a piece of writing or a memoir. I actually think it's incredibly deftly done and leaves you not quite sure how self-aware she really is. I think I give her more credit than you do. Mm -hmm. And I can even sort of cite a different passage that Uh might make you think that, you know, she lets her kids kind of get the upper hand. She's got another scene in which she has just been haranguing Sophia, who's actually usually the goody-goody daughter, about her practicing and threatened to take all your stuffed animals and burn them. And this is all in capital letters with an exclamation point. And then she says, in retrospect, the 
these coaching suggestions seem a bit extreme. <laughs> On the other hand, they were highly effective. Sophia and I were a great mother-daughter fit. I had the conviction and the tunnel vision drive. Sophia had the maturity, patience, and empathy I should have had but didn't. She accepted my premise that I knew and wanted what was best for her, and she cut me a break when I was bad-tempered or said hurtful things. I mean, she sort of has everything both ways there. Her kid gets to tell her off, which is what American kids do and Chinese kids presumably don't. Her kid gets to be the more mature voice in the duo, which, again, sort of undercuts her authority. And it's funny. I, you know, you really don't know quite how to assess this narrator. And I feel like that happens throughout the book. So you're saying she is in charge of her own narrative, that she does, that her confidence is such that she doesn't care so much what people think of her, or that she's writing it with the audience reaction in mind? Or sort of what do you think, what are you saying about her as a narrator? Yes, she has her audience in mind. She's completely aware of how over the top this is all going to seem to an American audience. Mm -hmm. And she's using that as part of her strategy to get a message across. And the message is that she's going to actually say, I've done it differently. There are different ways to do it. And she's also sort of saying, my daughters know how to read me. That's interesting. One thing that I have not gotten from any of the sort of my the book or the hoopla is that her children have have been damaged, possibly because as you know, in that excerpt you read, you know, they happen to be incredibly mature and have these seem to have these incredible wells of strength within them that I don't really know if immature instilled in them or they did have naturally. Uh, but you know, thank God that they have that. I didn't feel so much that she was as in control of the narrative as as I think you did. And to me, those flashes of you know, of kind of self-awareness, to me, seemed really manufactured in a way that her narrative voice sounded actually like that of a child prodigy, like a young person who's around adults enough to know how to sort of play the self-deprecating game, but not really. I mean, the thing that undermined, and I realized this as I was rereading, is she's an incredible name dropper in this way that is really grating after a while. Like, you know, in the end of the book, which is in the part of the book that's supposed to be, you know, the the third act the revelation, act. Yeah. right, um, where she learns, you know, whatever it is that she thinks she has learned from this experience. In the moment of, you know, what should be the, sort of the greatest kind of, I don't know, nakedness, she talks about this uh, concert she gives at her home that where all these famous judges are there, and they all are, you know, saying such wonderful things about her daughters and how how amazing they are. And it's this weird self-justification thing happening at the end of the book that makes me feel like she's not actually come to any self-awareness about this path that she's taken. You know, it's funny. I felt she was very first immigranty. I mean, that's part first generation immigranty. I mean, that's part of, you know, she's so in, deeply into presentation and being recognized and doing, doing the things correctly. And sort of, you know, whenever she talks about holding a party, she always has to buy the right food and buy tons of the right food. So it wouldn't surprise me so much that she would, you know, she has these moments when all of life comes together. You know, it's not really about moments of happiness for her. Am I satisfied with my job or any of the ways in which we're used to people kind of going about life in Western ways? It's like these pinnacles. I made it to Carnegie Hall. You know, mm -hmm. she played at her bat mitzvah. It's like there are these five moments in life which make it all worthwhile. That's kind of the rhythm of her child-rearing life, which is very unusual. I wouldn't say that's the rhythm of mine. The moments I remember are, you know, very random moments of happiness and togetherness that, mm -hmm. you know, I barely remember anybody's concert or ballet show. To talk more about the self-awareness question, because I'm really interested in this. Let's move to Lulu for a minute, because I feel like most people have not read this book who are writing about this book. That's perfectly clear because they always mention those same three stories. There are two or three other stories in the book which are much more 
you know, disturbing, horrible, the relationship with the Jewish grandmother, for example, which we can talk about in a minute. But with Lulu, she has a much more difficult relationship than with her first daughter. Lulu rebels in a genuine way. And I'm going to read some of the things she said. How can I have any friends? You won't let me do anything. I can't go anywhere. It's all your fault. You're a freak, you know, and then they have these fights. I know you've told me stop it. You're diseased. I mean, they, they have these really long drawn out fights. There's a, there's a point when Lulu cuts her hair. There's a very disturbing scene. It's the only scene in which Amy Chua, I think, really betrays a lack of self-confidence because it's kind of it has an exorcisty feel of Lulu mm-hmm. sitting there in her bed, ch- having chopped her hair off and Amy Chua looking at her and thinking, I really have created something demented. You know, it's the one genuine moment like that. And I wonder what you make of those, Anne, those those interactions with Lulu, which seem truly disturbed. Is she sort of telling a story there? Is she kind of telling an interesting story from which we're supposed to learn what? Well, again, I feel like I'm suddenly in the position of constantly defending Amy Chua, but um, <laughs> just to be more interesting, just to be more interesting, I'll continue doing it. At that point, the book does have an arc. And the arc, by its third part, is about Amy Chua's comeuppance. And there really is a comeuppance. And I actually think part of what is painful about the third section of the book, and the one that makes you most apprehensive about the publication of this book, is that she does bear poor Lulu's crisis pretty nakedly there. And it does seem to me she's pretty honest about how she's suddenly really worried. I mean, there's a kid who isn't just angry at her, is angry at her father, is angry at her sister, closes the door to her room, is clearly depressed and upset and doesn't, you know, is unhappy at school. Every symptom of a deeply unhappy 13-year-old. And she's rattled. She's not seen this before in Sophia, and she admits it. And the prose and the perspective does change. She's also said, I think she even says it in the book, that that section was really, really hard for her to write. The first two kind of flowed forth. She was the persona she's okay at being. I think And took her six weeks, by the way. I, just I want think to she's point at that, yeah, eight or something. <laughs> right. like, yeah. Whereas the third really was a much harder enterprise for her. And you can see why, because she's actually writing about a very difficult thing that plenty of us have been through. You know, adolescent turmoil is is hard. And the idea of trying to depict it in pages of a book that's sort of got the tone that hers has, it's pretty tough. But I agree with you there. It has an effect. So how do we reconcile those two parts? I mean, this is what I'm always thinking when I'm reading the media coverage. No one's read the final third. Is she presenting herself as a cautionary tale? I mean, she failed with Lulu in some sense. They have this blowout in a restaurant. She says something like, here I was criticizing these out-of-control Western children. Now look at me. I'm sitting here in this restaurant. My daughter's just smashed a glass on the floor. We're having a screaming, dragging argument, and I just walked out the door. And then she comes back, and it's this very dramatic moment, and she says, fine, you win. You can give up the violin. And she lets her give up the violin. And so is this book not, in fact, what she has been saying? I mean, everybody's been making fun of her on all the media interviews she's been doing for backtracking. But isn't she a cautionary tale there? I mean, isn't she at some level saying, you know, I screwed this one up? I think in some ways, she is a cautionary tale. But at the same time, you know, rereading that last part of the book, I don't know, to me, it feels like if she failed with Lulu, it's not that she, you know, created a child that, you know, is an emotional turmoil, but a child who, you know, with Sophia, Sophia did what her mother wanted, and Lulu doesn't. It seems like the failure is the the efficiency of the parenting system. You know, it Mm -hmm. makes me wonder if Lulu had been docile and sad, but had played piano as much or played the violin as much as her mother wanted and had, you know, committed to her schoolwork, would her mother have looked at her parenting methods and thought, oh, maybe... I was on the wrong path. I didn't end the book feeling that that would have happened. Mm -hmm. No, in fact, I think she would not have written this book if she had not had Lulu, which is a sort of interesting Mm -hmm. thing to think about. She knew that in order to present herself as a mother in the throes of the experiment or whatever one would call she's in the throes of, she has to have 
two daughters who respond very differently. She has to have a moment in which she herself is challenged. She has to have a kid who proves what she desperately needs proved, which is that her method does not produce automatons, does not produce crushed and willless children. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, she's got these kids who are incredibly accomplished and who are willing to tell her off and who are willing in the end to drag her into public. I mean, I actually think the way she tells the story of Lulu's rebellion, though it's very painful, is quite revealing. She says, obviously, an enterprise like mine is a kind of, she says something like closet enterprise. And uh-huh. in the, you know, in America, you can't do this out, <laughs> out loud, really. <laughs> but Lulu had my number. When she got sick of this, she took me to task in public. And that's where this doesn't work anymore, and where suddenly I was called on a carpet, I had to confront the ways in which my methods don't wash in America. But Lulu is proof that even that outcome is actually a good one. You know, that's such an interesting theory, because it's clear from the book, and I've been trying to make sense of this, that her kind of intellectual, emotional, and narrative energy is with Lulu. I mean, Sophia, there's one moment where she quotes a beautiful letter that Sophia wrote just before she's playing at Carnegie Hall, and structurally, the book is set up that that's the crescendo of the family existence, playing at Carnegie Hall. But in fact, emotionally, that's not at all a memorable moment in the book. All the memorable moments are with Lulu. And so I've always wondered, what is it about her and Lulu? What is the lesson we're supposed to take from Lulu? But maybe it is what exactly what you're saying, that you get to have it all ways. In other words, you get to have this rebellious child. And in the end, there's this funny kind of interplay between her and Lulu. It's not clear that Lulu's any kind of tennis prodigy, but it is clear that she's quite good at tennis um, and she's on her high school tennis team. And Amy Chua describes herself sort of stealthily texting <laughs> the tennis coach in a way which makes her seem like the errant dysfunctional child in the end and Lulu seem like the person in control. And that's kind of interesting. I do think that is crucial to the narrative, and the way she gives the daughters the ending is also crucial to the narrative. And I don't think totally dishonest and cynical. I think it. she describes herself having no idea how to end this book, mm-hmm. and finally coming around to think, okay, I'm going to talk to the girls, and we're going to come up with a way to end it. And in a way, the ending is her conversation with them, how to think about this book. They each get to say, oh, mom, you make me look so terrible. Right. Sophia looks good. No, Lulu, you look better. And how could you have done this to us? And they seem very Western. They, they don't seem like the Eastern robots that we would like them to be. And, you know, sorry, Nina, you'll get to defend Eastern robots in a minute. And then, so they get to be that. And then in all these media interviews that she's done, we know, we've learned that Sophia has a boyfriend. And she, Sophia wrote a letter defending her. We haven't heard from Lulu, but Lulu's much younger. So I guess you're right. She wins in a way. It doesn't right. matter. I mean, she writes a best-selling book. She has these wonderful daughters. And she has this method which makes us all feel rather insecure. Before we move on to the cultural impact, which is going to require us to forget everything that we've just talked about and pretend this is the book that the media has covered solely. I want to ask you, Anne, to put this in the context of other prodigy memoirs, or I don't know if the body of work is called the prodigy, you know, the prodigy body of work, but other things that we know and have heard from prodigies. How is this unique? How does it stand out? Where does it fit into that canon? What's most interesting is that there really, as far as I know, hasn't been a parent memoir about the rearing of prodigies. There have been parent manifestos and Amy Chua makes a big point of saying that is absolutely not what she thinks hers is. Hers is a memoir, a memoir, a memoir. And there really isn't another example. There are manifestos by the fathers, for example, of two math prodigies at Harvard at the turn of the century. They propounded their principles, said that other people should be able to follow them, did allude to their offspring at home who were the perfect proof that their methods worked, but they did that pretty much in glancing. Generally, it's been left to the prodigies themselves many decades later to write their memoirs and which they look back and they sort of open up the door and do a version of what 
Amy Chua does, which is try to say a little more vividly how those principles really were implemented, what daily life was like with that parent. Of course, they're all in retrospect. It's not immediate the way Mm -hmm. hers is. So hers is really pretty different. Is it like the John Stuart Mill? You know, I I had a nervous breakdown. On the other hand, I learned about excellence and commitment and focus. Is that the general lesson that they draw from their upbringing? Well, I think full-fledged memoirs by prodigies are actually not that common a genre. Certainly Mm -hmm. Norbert Wiener, who was one of the math prodigies at Harvard at Mm -hmm. the turn of the century. His is very much like John Stuart Mill's. It's a mix of great gratitude and empathy for his father and sense that he was a soulmate who guided him into intellectual rigorous terrain that he never regretted. At the same time, he too basically had an adolescent breakdown. We didn't know who he was, didn't know why he was doing what he was doing, felt that his father had taken credit for all his accomplishments and had burdened him with all his failures, and really had to work a long time and had a hard time finding his own direction in life. And I think that's a pretty common pattern, Mm -hmm. uh, that this moment of adolescent transition for a prodigy is really, really hard. I think it's especially hard once you've been made a public model. Right, which these girls have been made a public model. I mean, it's hard to judge the impact of this book or anything that's happened on them until many years later, right? Right. I think that's the real, I mean, and it is very new in that they've had their moment to respond in a way, mm-hmm. along with Amy Chua, the daughter, the older daughter really has been out there. And mm-hmm. in a way, they had a moment even within the book itself to respond to the book. Right. And that's sort of very 21st century. You know, that hasn't happened before. I'm always wondering if it would have been different if they were sons. Okay, let's move a little bit on to the cultural impact of this book. In order to discuss this properly, we're going to have to reel back and explain kind of how this book entered the public consciousness not as a full-fledged book, but as an idea. And this began with a Wall Street Journal article, which was called Mother Superior. It's sort of how Chinese mothers are superior to Western mothers, something like that. And it distilled Amy Chua's argument into the things that were designed to provoke the most fear in Western parents, which is this idea that, you know, we are weak-willed. Her children are never allowed to have playdates. They're never allowed to be in a school play. They don't watch TV. They can't play computer games. They have to be number one at everything, not number two. And I told that story about Lulu that Nina recounted earlier about Lulu being put out to the cold and, you know, being forced to practice and not being allowed to go to the bathroom. And I think it may have even mentioned the burning of the stuffed animals, although I can't remember. But this is the thing that the culture reacted to much more than the book itself. So then we had this amazing reaction. And Nina, describe sort of from the Eastern parent sense, kind of what stereotype was formed, what stereotype it taps into, you know, kind of what was your reaction when you heard, oh no, yet another crazy Chinese mother thing? I actually, because I knew we were doing this podcast, had read the book sort of before the Wall Street Journal came out. And I don't think she does... a much more nuanced cultural analysis in the book than she than was in that excerpt. But basically, the book and the Wall Street Journal article just tapped into this idea that Asian American children, in general, Chinese American children are, are raised in these homes where there is no joy and no affection, and that all of our parents are these harsh taskmasters and taskmistresses who only love us based on our academic output or our, you know, the, the, the accomplishments we can we can bring home. And, and was that uh, true in your household? It was it was not true in my household. Did and you ever get a B? I got some Bs, but I mean, I also was like naturally kind of a nerdy kid and was really into school and, you know, doing lots of extracurriculars and, and that kind of thing. So, so one of the things that I think at least made it difficult to respond to this sort of picture she had drawn is that she very much draws this picture 
from an isolated sample, right? You know, her and her parents and her children. And she extrapolates wildly into, you know, this is what Chinese parents are like. This is what Western parents are like. And that sort of mismatch makes it sort of difficult to talk about because what may be true for her family and what may be true for individual, you know, Chinese, Chinese American families out there may not be true for the whole. So you had a lot of people responding to, you know, oh, I know a family that's just like that. Therefore, that is exactly what Chinese families are like. And then on the other hand, you have people saying, well, my family wasn't like right. that. So therefore, there are and, no Chinese families like that. And, and it's that interesting because very- in the book, you know, she only seems to ping against other Asian families. She'll say, you know, when her daughters don't want to practice on vacation, she'll say, do you think the Kims are taking a rest? Do you think the Kims are taking off on vacation? Or, you know, when her daughter gets second on the math drill, it's the poor Korean boy who's the one who she, she doesn't seem to play this game with the Western parents. In fact, her husband's Jewish and the grandmother Florence comes into the picture. And the Jews in this book represent the kind of lax, you know, people who think childhood should be reckless, adventurous, mm-hmm. wandering and everything. And so even though she says, you know, a Ghanaian mother can be a Chinese mother, a Russian mother can be a Chinese mother, she, she does not limit it to the, you know, to the ethnic stereotype of Chinese. She does only seem to enact her craziness among other, you know, Asian parents. So why does it tap into our the Sputnik moment, as everyone calls it? Like, we're falling <laughs> behind the Chinese. Oh, my God, you know, in math test scores, you know, people in Shanghai have, have soared above us. I mean, there is something to that idea that, you know, maybe we're, you know, I think that's why people are so nervous. It's like, okay, so you can name an individual family that doesn't raise their kids like that. But the fact is, you know, Asian children get test scores far above Western children. Well, and they do in this country, not just in China. It's not simply we're worrying about the menace from abroad. It's if you look at achievement in this country, Asian American students tend to do much better than other students. In certain subjects. In certain subjects. And that does seem, I think, to present a call to arms in a way at home. Though I think the interesting drama she doesn't really tap into, though I think her book has been strategically put out there to play into, is that there is a whole contingent of perfectly non-immigrant families in the United States who do a kind of version of what she's doing, which is the elite, hyper-parented, super-kid model, which she doesn't actually address, except in various points where Mm she talks about the difficulties and the ambivalence that American Western parents feel about pressuring their kids to achieve. So it's not as though she doesn't acknowledge that there is a big strain in this country already that has been worried about this, who are not Asian Americans and who are egging their kids on, pushing them to do all kinds of extracurriculars, wanting them to get A's, wanting them to do, you know, enter competitions. This is not an un-American enterprise at this point, quite the contrary. That's the point where I thought she really had our number. I don't know if you're talking about a, a really select group of parents or the general general American ethos that our children are special and that we praise them a lot. I mean, I did think that she had us right when she said that we have this notion that our children are special and, you know, geniuses in some way and musical this. I mean, you often hear parents talk, oh, my child has such musical talent, but we don't actually have the guts to make that happen. And reading this book, I wondered, and you probably know the answer to this question, are there prodigies or people who end up at Carnegie Hall who don't practice for? I mean, is it possible to create or have a prodigy or someone who succeeds, given that let's say you're one of these Western parents who wants your child to succeed, do you have to act like Amy Chua in order to get your child to succeed? I think you do not arrive at Carnegie Hall in eighth grade unless you have been practicing many, many more hours a day than any average kid who plays the piano would ever dream of practicing. And you have to have this goal that that's what you're going to do. 
Because I was thinking, okay, you can get a kid to practice one or two hours with gentle coaxing a day. And, you know, I'm thinking with my own daughter who's Sophia-like and pretty, you know, gentle soul and listens to what we say and everything. Two hours a day, I could probably push her. But four hours a day, I mean, I would have to burn her stuffed animals. I don't see how I could get a child to practice piano four or five hours a day without resorting to some of these extreme techniques. I think you do not to, again, be too much in Amy Chua's camp, but her (laughs) idea of the virtue cycle, I do think that if a kid ends up signing on to the idea that they are on a mission to be the best at whatever it is that they do, there does come to be an internal motivation at work. So it isn't simply the parent who's egging the kid on. When? At some point? I think older than your daughter is yet. Uh I mean, I do think there's, you know, a sense of autonomous ownership of the enterprise is really important. I think you can have kids who are obsessively good at concentrating at things too, and that'll carry them a long way through the bumpy stretch where it isn't so much fun, even if you are committed to the end product. Mm-hmm. What Anne was saying about that there, there needing to be a kind of sort of autonomous drive from the child um, is important. It also is, you know, one of the things that made me uncomfortable about Chua's book is that her children are clearly exceptional. I mean, even if you made your child practice six hours a day, you know, not every child is going to be able to make it to Carnegie Hall. I don't know about grade. that. I have well, a I question mean, mark about that. I mean, one of the things about this is she, she seems to, without making this explicit, have that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of practice idea mm-hmm. in her head that actually they could be any child and you you know she doesn't ever talk about their innate music I mean there's a moment when she says Lulu seems to have a nice you know ear or something when she's mm-hmm. four you know that that could describe 70% of four year olds she has other people say that throughout the book there are these constant you know scenes set at concerts and at one point Jesse Norman comes up to her and says oh your children have such a musical gift you know and all these people are always coming up to them and saying oh I can see how your child really feels the music and really you know. And isn't she thinking in her head all that time, like, feel schmeal? It's because they practice six hours a day? Like, she's just sort of playing it up in the social circuit, but she knows what it takes for a child to feel the music at that age. She also very cagely has a whole essay by Sophia, maybe you've forgotten it, about learning that Prokofiev piece, Mm -hmm. in which it isn't Chua who gives her daughter the keys to learning the piece. It's a wonderful piano teacher. But the piano teacher says, you know, let's think about the color and the temperature of this side of the Romeo and Juliet story that you're playing. And Which Sophia is very thoughtful, and, and she is clearly a person who is not just devoted to technical mastery and a drone at the piano. She's completely invested in this enterprise and does find huge fulfillment in having mastered this piece. I guess that is, in a way, the answer to the question of, can any kid who you make do this end up at Carnegie Hall? No. You have to make that switch at some point. I have to say that description that Amy Chua had of that piano teacher was the first time I felt that she understands childhood. I mean, she understands what is interesting to a child. I mean, she writes this book as if she is willfully ignorant of what a child might want to do at any given moment, except at that moment, where she at least recognizes that here's a man who's able to reach children in a way that will, you know, know, reach their pleasure centers and make them want to do. He's at least trying to kind of meet them in their space. And I thought that was very interesting. I'm going to read a little bit of Sophia's essay because it's another moment where you think, wow, you know, she's really made the flip. This is when she's about to perform in Carnegie Hall. Performing isn't easy. In fact, it's heartbreaking. You spend months, maybe years mastering a piece. You become a part of it and it becomes a part of you. Playing for an audience is like giving blood. It leaves you feeling empty and a bit lightheaded. And when it's all over, your piece just isn't yours anymore. It was time. I walked out to the piano and bowed. Only the stage was lit and I couldn't see the faces of the audience. I said goodbye to Romeo and Juliet and then released them into the darkness. And that's a really lovely thing for a child to write, you know? So, Anne, what is the truth? 
truth here about Western parents and their reaction to this book. What is it that is making us incredibly nervous? I mean, if it's not the sort of Asian menace idea necessarily, I mean, what what is it? How can we explain this reaction, this overwrought, defensive, (laughs) violent reaction? In a way, I can't help thinking that if there hadn't been a reaction, we would really be scratching our heads. It takes nothing now to start a version of the Mommy Wars. Nothing. Uh Uh And this book is such a huge provocation that it seems to me it had to. And it came in exactly the right package. It had the Asian angle. It had the right mixed tone. It was able to be packaged perfectly. the timing given trouble at home and uncertain futures and, you know, China's rise. It just, it's, everything was scripted for it to do exactly what it's done. So that almost seems to me the easy question. And there's always an anxiety on the part of Americans about whether they're too soft, too hard, too ambivalent, too uncertain, too anxious. You mean always sort of in always. American parenting history, yes. this is what you write about this Raising is, America, which is, is Anne's first book, the back and forth between... It's constantly there. Right. And she taps into sort of both, you know, the fear that we're never hard enough and the defensive sense that, hey, wait a minute, we're the source of creativity and the way we do it actually is a great way to do it. And some very stark and sometimes pretty ugly version of that debate is what's unfolded. You sort of hope that there could be the constructive version of it, too. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that's mm-hmm. happening. But Nina, did, your, did you talk to your mother about this book? Did she look at it? I wonder what your mother would have said. My mother hasn't actually read it, but I have spoken to lots and lots of other people like me and like Amy Chua, which is worth pointing out, that she herself is Asian-American. And, you know, she's born in the U.S., raised in the U.S., which I think is a sort of an important point that sometimes gets missed. My mother hasn't read it, but my mother, who is Chinese, also is very outside the image that Amy Chua is drawing of, of what Chinese mothering is like. So it's almost as if, like, I don't know what, <laughs> what exactly she, she would relate. have to say about this book. There are probably things that she could relate to, but this, this weird, you know, caricature that Amy Chua has drawn of herself, and I think that's another reason why the book has sort of, the discussion has taken off the way that it has, is that in Amy Chua, there is this very convenient sort of lightning rod villain to sort of focus on. And whatever deficiencies I think there are in in the book and in her cultural analysis, you know, uh, the, the very personal tone of, you know, the the vilification of Amy Cha is definitely unnerving. You know, it's, it raises the other central tension in this book, which is what does Amy Chua represent? Does she represent any kind of Chinese mother? Does she represent an immigrant community? That's really hard to put your finger on because she's very particularly Amy Chua. I mean, she, she mm-hmm. could have gone either way. She tells the story about how her own father, late when she's trying to decide what she, to do about Lulu, she tells the story about her own father who essentially was the Lulu of his family. He rebelled against his family and does not speak to his mother anymore. And she claims that what tipped her in favor of letting Lulu give up the violin was that she did not want to break her relationship with Lulu. How much of this is true or not, I don't know. But presumably, she's known what her father is all this time. There's clearly something in her that chose this path. I mean, she's not married to another Chinese man. She doesn't Mm -hmm. live in a neighborhood in which it would be a problem if her daughter were third or fourth. There isn't some Chinese community that's reinforcing her or judging her in any way, you know? So it's hard to say what exactly she represents except Amy Chu. And she says a a lot of reasonably self-reflective things. You know, I'm not a person who likes to have any fun. I get freaked out when the children are out in the garden. I, I wish that everyone would just stay locked up all the time in the music room, and she knows she's kind of weird. One of the things that does seem to me puzzling and about her enterprise is that Amy Chua and her husband are perfect examples of people who absolutely didn't have to do what she did mm-hmm. in order to mm-hmm. prevent third-generation decline, which is the way she frames the whole book. 
here they are, these two incredibly successful law professors who both aren't the dyed-in-the-wool just law professors. They write mysteries. They do other things. They have lots of money. They live in a lovely place in New Haven, a very intellectual city. Their kids go to a good school. Their kids could be soaring ahead, being very successful examples of you know, the children of the elite without any of what Amy Chua has put them through. So, mm-hmm. and at one point when she's got, I think it's Lulu at the competition for Juilliard spot, she sees the other parents. They are actually her, I guess, first generation parents. And she said, you know, this for them really is the ticket. Mm-hmm. And she realizes for mm-hmm. me, it's not the ticket. So there is this funny tension. As you said, all the landmarks of the process are sort of immigrant landmarks, you know, the bar mitzvah, the Carnegie Hall, the, the this camps, that. The that. And right. yet, <laughs> on the other hand, she's living in a world in which she's so part of mm-hmm. a very elite mainstream that does not require mm-hmm, the right. Chinese version of all of this to stay at the tippy top. The episode where they go to, is it Hungary to do the Two Child Prodigy concert? Yes. Because of who she is and who the family she's married to and the connection she has, you know, they are able to get introductions to you know fancy people in Hungary and set up this concert. And I was like, there's a level of cultural access that she has by being part of that elite that you described that she doesn't need to sort of be replicating some kind of what immigrant some existence. kind of cliched classic immigrant story that she has in her mind of how, you know, my children are going to be successful. And yet she can tap into that. I mean, she does have that doom thing that immigrants have. It's sort of all or nothing. I don't get into Juilliard. I'm back in the streets again, you know, which I (laughs) recognize from my own immigrant family. It's like this one thing is your ticket out. If you don't get that ticket, you know, you're living in the streets. You know, she definitely hangs on to that immigrant thing. I want to do two quick thought experiments before we close this off. One is, could she have done this with sons? I mean, that's the way in which I tried to think of her as Western. You can imagine a true hardcore immigrant family doing the same thing with sons as math prodigies. But there seemed something so Western in the mother-daughter relationship that Mm -hmm. I wondered if, you know, would it be possible for her to have enacted the same drama in the same emotional way if she had had a couple of sons instead of a couple of daughters? I think it's a really interesting question. When I think back on other pairings, it does tend to be that fathers take their sons in hands and mothers are usually really big in the picture in the foreground when we're talking about prodigy daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, though mm-hmm. not always. It's not always Because you do feel like, like she just had a son, he could have been playing baseball with Jeb and writing some mystery. You know, right. Right? <laughs> it all would have been all right. Right. I also think it taps into, I mean, when you look at Asian American, you know, narratives as a whole, the mother-daughter relationship, you know, ever since Joy Luck Club has become the sort of primary imaginative kind of unit you know, and at some point, you know, Amy Choi even talks about like, oh, when I was in my 20s, like every other Asian American, you know, every other Chinese American woman, I thought I was going to write this epic novel about me and my and my mother's generation. And so there, there's a way in which that relationship is very important. Although I, I found think. that really funny. Like, I did not grow up thinking I was going to write, you know, be Henry Roth. Like, it was either I oh. was a great guy, <laughs> just by virtue of being, you know, a Jew, an Israeli immigrant, like I was going to oh. be, you know, Aleph Bet Yehoshua or something and yeah. write beautiful poetry. It doesn't, it's not, I'm not a writer, you know, I'm not that kind of writer. So it doesn't I automatically think, <laughs> come to you from being, a, you know, Chinese. Her aspirations right. are comical Well, I sometimes. think, I think that it, the Joy Club does have a very, in a very, very strong way, has shaped a lot of, I think, second generation Asian American women's ideas of how they fit into the world. Uh-huh. So that to me, I actually laughed because I also thought that at some point I would write <laughs> <that> epic novel. <laughs> but it's funny to me that she she recognizes that that was sort of like a, a funny, cliched story and then spins off on this weird other old cultural cliche <laughs> that she doesn't seem to have the same kind of self-awareness about. Right. 
Well, the second thought experiment is what if she hadn't been privileged? I mean, would we have thought her more abusive if she had been a poorer family? That's another thing I wonder about. The fact that she was in Yale and that, you know, the fact that the kids are protected in some way stops us, I feel like, just short of calling the authorities. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. plenty of commenters on websites have said, you know, call the child abuse authorities. But if she had been less privileged, would we feel more kind of fear about the safety of the children? I think that as with a lot of thought experiments, probably certain other things have to be changed in order to get there. And Mm -hmm. one of them, and this gets back to the first topic we addressed, is if they had been less privileged, Amy Chua's own perspective on it would be different. And there would be this, I'm not quite sure which way it would cut. Mm -hmm. There would be this, this is our ticket. This is how we do it. And we would feel a little bit, well, who are we to judge on the one hand? On the other hand, it would be, there is, wouldn't be the self-aware sense that I'm aware of the choice I'm making and I'm in control here and we live in a world in which I can cushion some of my choices. So I don't know which way it would have cut. Right. It would feel more out of control, but we might get, we might in fact give it more breathing room because we feel like it actually was their ticket out and she wasn't inventing this crazy narrative that wasn't actually true. Okay. Well, I think we are done with Amy Chua, although I'm sure that the rest of the culture is not done with Amy Chua. I uh, have just two last questions. One, well, maybe this is more for you, Anne, as a parent. I had this fear at one point that it was going to permanently change parenting culture. I don't know if this is a moment that's passed. You said, you know, every mother war is, you know, another occasion for a mommy war. And there was a part of me that felt like, you know, I heard all these stories from my parent friends. Like, I was harder on Jacob. I made him practice X number more <laughs> minutes of his drums. That's my son. And I just wondered if there was some way in which this was going to permeate our consciousness in a way that very few books have. I mean, very few books have been talked about this much. Maybe Jonathan Franzen's That's Freedom is the last one I can remember. But yeah. um, but this one being so personal and about parenting, it, does it have any lasting permanent impact? I think it's hard to say. On the one hand, it really isn't a how-to book. And she makes it so clear how part of a crazy quilt this is. And nobody thinks they could imitate that. On the other hand, I guess I would say if it ends up meaning that more parents pay a little bit more attention to the fact that really work is key. Mm-hmm. And really, there is a tension with peers sometimes. Of course, you don't want to cut your kid off from peers, but maybe there are reasons that putting some greater limits than we do on that makes sense. And well, I wouldn't be totally surprised if it had a little bit of that effect. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure we should be deeply panicked if it does. Yeah, I mean, some of the effect it had on me, I have to say, was good, which is this, don't farm out your child's activities to professionals, like my, again, with my son who takes swimming lessons, and instead of sort of watching, I actually got in the pool, this seems very trite, but I spent an hour with him after his lesson kind of going over. You know, there's a a tender way in which you can commit yourself to your child's activities rather than having 50,000 activities, you choose two, and you actually give some love to the ones that they choose, and it was actually, it was, you know, a fabulous afternoon that we had together, where usually I'm just rushing them out of the pool because I'm cold. So, you know, it was it was actually kind of nice. I well, thank Amy Chua for that. Yeah, no, and that's a good way to put it. I think some other expert is called American parents often sort of recreational coordinators, and that's how we bustle and hustle all the time. Amy Chua isn't a recreational coordinator. She's a kind of accomplice, ally, you know, right. whatever. That is, if you construe it in the most positive sense, and your story mm-hmm. seems to me a perfect example of Right. So thank you, Amy. Um, Nina, would you recommend this book? That's my final question that we always ask on the book club. Would you recommend this book and to whom? 
I would recommend it to anybody who wants to continue engaging in the conversation about it. That's for circular I, kind of recommendation. <laughs> because, because I think that is important that if you're going to like keep, you know, talking about this, it is important to read the book in the middle of it. But I can't say that I would recommend the book as a piece of writing. It didn't work for me as a memoir. And I certainly don't think it ha- is doing anything for the Asian American community that right. I think continues to struggle to be seen as the diverse community that it is. Right. So in that um, case, you would wish for it to go away. I can completely I, sympathize I would, with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I would recommend it to people who don't read all that much. I feel like it so obviously provokes a strong reaction that, you know, I was thinking of giving it to my mother, for example, just because it brings out things in people. And I think in that sense, it succeeds as a memoir. How about you, Anne? I, you know, I have to say that at every occasion I've been at in the last 10 days, yes. this is what everybody wants to talk about. Right. And the conversation has been quite interesting. Right. And not as vicious as the internet conversation, which I must admit mm-hmm. made me think I would never want to write anything about parenting again, and I never wanted to read anything about parenting again. But the human-to-human conversation about it seems to me actually causes and sparks good reflection, and it's very short, and it's kind of amusing when it isn't horrifying. Right, and quite (laughs) easy to read. Well, that brings us to a close. Please join us on Monday, February 28th, again, for Emma Donahue's Room, so read it before that podcast. Nina and Anne, thank you very much for joining me today, and Abdul, thank you for engineering this podcast, and we will talk to you in another month. 